Every so often, I need a reset. Now, those of you that have never used Windows products don't understand this concept. You use Apple, you don't need to reset. But, and and I, now I do. But in the old days, the longer you used the computer, the worse it got. You had to turn it off, walk around the block twice, do an incantation of some sort to Bill Gates, turn it back on, and then it worked again. When I heard that Bill Gates wanted to actually get involved in working and uh, making cars, I was going, oh no, it'll stall without any understanding. Everything will turn blue in front of you. You'll have to get out, shut the doors, walk around, then get back in and start it. And I'm going, I don't want that to happen. But every so often I do resets. One of them is to read a book by a guy named Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was the uh, head of psychiatry, uh, the chair of teaching psychiatry at the university in Vienna. When the world fell apart, the Germans came, the Nazis came. The rules of civilization were thrown out, and the rules of what happens next were completely rewritten. Re, uh, I can't even say rewritten, thank you. He lost his family. And he nearly lost his own life in the camps before he watched those that survived, studied them, and figured out how they did it. At the end of the war, he took those experiences and put them together in a little book called A Man's Search for Meaning. It's, a very, it's only 100 pages or so. Everybody should read it. A Man's Search for Meaning. And out of that, he developed something called logotherapy. And that is a counseling modality, a therapy that uses meaning, helping people understand their meaning among the universe, who you are, why we're here, what that means. We need, in another term, an identity. I've told before about when my daughter was on a swim team and they would like to do their cheers about we're from West Virginia and we're the best and the other teams would say we're from Massachusetts, we're the best and then one time at a swim meet, because they have them every five seconds, and they last 18 hours. I'm not really sure how that works, but um, she, her team was yelling, we're from West Virginia and we're the best, and it got quiet because all the teams were from West Virginia. They were just different parts. We need an identity to tell us who we are and who we're not. We need to know where our boundaries are. My staff up in the Detroit area, where I was for 10 years, used to call me Dr. No because I knew where my boundaries were. Well, the first years that we were there, they were saying, now we do this really big carnival in the fall, and the, the preachers sit in a dunking booth, and I went, no. And they said, no, no, it's fun, it's fun. And they went on and on, and I went, no. And they tried several other times, and then they realized I wasn't going to elaborate. It was just, no, I have a line, not happening. This is not because it's a sin to go into dunking booths. I've, I've been in one, but it was a baptism. <laughs> It was a baptism, and that was completely different. There was a lot of dignity there. When do you get your identity? And from where do you get your identity? Well, Erickson and Maslow and all these others would tell you, you're supposed to do that when you're a teenager. You're supposed to figure out who you are. All a teenager knows about their identity is they're not you. And that's fine. You know, they walk in one day, and they see you. Please understand that their perspective is this. You have... Nobody telling you what to do. You can get in the car if you want to and go wherever you want to go. You can buy stuff. You can decide what's going, what's happening. You have all that power. What are you doing? You're sitting in a chair, watching a rerun, leaning over to the wife saying, next year I think we'll put in a row of beans in the garden. She's going, ooh, dare we? You know, and that, 
you know, the scandal. And they're terrified. And so they know they don't want to end up like you. So they're trying other things. You know, they'll come in one time dressed as a goth, the next time a strawberry shortcake. It, they're going to try different identities. And finding your identity is a very important thing. Every generation needs to find their identity or they will be assigned one. I know many millennials who are sick and tired of articles and news stories about millennials because they're saying, we're not all like that, but we're trying to be forced into an identity. I get that. I do. Finding your identity is a tough job, but we've got to do it. And it's not a straight line. You're going to run into some dead ends. I can remember changing jobs because thinking, I want this job, I want this job. Got a job and went, don't want this job. This is, not, this is not what I expected. I remember once thinking, I really need to understand a lot more about the way balance sheets work and the like. And I know some of you live to do Excel, and that's why I don't invite you to my home. I, we have nothing to talk about, nothing. But I decided, I'm going to take an accountancy course when I was in Scotland. And, and I lasted. I, I, I made it. I persevered through the second, court, through the second class. That was it. Whenever they started saying, well, if you want it to be an, <clears throat> a credit, you move it to this side. If you want it to be a debit, you move it to this side. And I'm going, well, don't you just put them in the right? And they were saying, no, no, sometimes a credit can be a debit. Or I went, all right, and I'm out. You know, I thought, I th I thought physics was weird. Uh, I've, I found out when you ask an accountant what the balance is, they lean over and say, what do you want it to be? And that bothered me. <clears throat> so I don't even balance our checkbook. Cammie does that, I assume. There's some sort of animal sacrifice involved, in, but whatever it was, she'll come to me and tell me this is how much we have, and all right, fair enough. You have to make adjustments. Our church has made adjustments, have we not? To seek out our identity in Christ, we've made adjustments. Some of those will continue. Some of those we may not. We're going to let the Spirit make that call. We don't have a grand overall plan. We're just wanting to hear God and walk with God. That's our identity. According to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, we were made in the image and the likeness of God. We are spiritual beings. He spoke into being everything else in the universe but you. People he handmade. And then he breathed into them the breath of life. We are spiritual beings. We're not like the rest of the planet. And we are made in the image. This is so important. We are made in the image of a God who defined himself by saying, God is love. I don't believe that I need to tell anybody in this room that we often forget our identity. We often forget who we are and whose image we were made. So Jesus comes to us. Comes to us through Mary in Bethlehem. We know the story. But he came to do an awful lot for us. And we talk about to die for us, absolutely. To teach us, absolutely. To show us a better way of living, absolutely. All of those things. To be resurrected, to give us eternal life. Nailed it, absolutely. But there's something else he, he chose to do. He chose to give us a new identity. He arrived in a divided world. Spoiler alert. The world's always been divided. Always will be divided. Let's not be surprised when it's divided. And he said, I want to call you out from among them. Paul used that phrase. I want to give you a new identity. I want to put my mark on you in Revelation. I want to make you a different people. He wants to show us who we really are. 
We'd forgotten who we are. We forgot we're in the image of God. We forgot we're made in the image of a God who says God is love. And because we forget this, we end up in bad places doing bad things. God says you've got to remember. One of my favorite movies was the first Jason Bourne movie. And I liked it for a lot of reasons. But one of my favorite scenes, if you don't know, that he's a super warrior, super spy, super you know, James Bondish type guy. And I, and I, I identify. Uh, so I, I just, I love that. All right, to be honest, I'm less James Bond than Gold Bond at this stage, but still. So he's, he's, he doesn't know who he is. He's, he's had amnesia for some time. And he's sitting on a bench, not knowing what to do, but he's loitering. And here come a couple of policemen. It's, a, it's in a foreign country. And they're going to rouse the vagrants out of the park. And he's just sitting there, and one of them bumps him a bit hard. Next thing he knows, he's absolutely beaten them and thrown them around the park a few times. And that's when he realizes, oh, I'm a warrior. I think sometimes we need to remember who we are. I've told my kids, it could have been tragic. They could have bumped him. And he said, wait, those shoes don't go with that outfit. He's a designer. He would have found out that, oh, I work in, I work in textiles. But it was, it was more exciting than that. We need to remember who we are. And that's not easy because you remember millennials and that whole thing. The world keeps trying to define who you are and how you should respond all the time. Oh, you're from there. This is the way you should respond. Oh, you're that color. That's the way you should respond. Oh, you work in that job. This is the way you should respond. I can remember my first hospital, working in my first hospital job, and they were doing the orientation for me, walking me around, saying, you know, you'll be working here, and you'll be working with this, that, and the other. And they said, now you'll be working with a great deal of surgeons. I said, yes, I, I understand that. And, they, and I have a surgeon friend here, so I have to tell this. And they, uh, they said, no, do you really understand what that means? And I said, I understand the definition of surgeon. You know, I, I, I looked it up last night. I was cramming for today. And they said, no, you need to understand. Do you know the difference between a surgeon and God? And I went, no. He said, God, does, God doesn't think he's a surgeon. But... That was free, Glenn. Uh, anyway. And I, he's probably heard that a million times anyway. We are given an identity. We're not God, but we're his kids. We're his children. We're royalty. We're priesthood. It's a special, special thing. Later uh, in, in the book of Luke, there's the birth. The prophet Simeon sees Jesus and goes, Now I've seen the salvation of all nations. And then in chapter 11, Jesus tells his family, I have an identity. I must be about my father's business. I've got to be doing what I'm here to do. What are you here to do? Well, I would suggest that it's, a, it's actually a different question you want, might want to ask yourself. Instead of what are you here to do, what are you here to be? Because in Christianity... It's not as much doing as it is being. If you are being Christian, you will do the right things. Doing the right things doesn't make you a Christian. It's a question of being. In Luke 3, Jesus is baptized. Luke 4, he's tested by the, the devil in the wilderness and rejected in his hometown. But he boldly enters the synagogue to take his place among the community. See, he had an identity. He belonged to a faith community. 
he needs to be where the faith community is. When he's handed the scroll to read, he reads this from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Look at the sense of identity Jesus has. That's what we're going for here. He knows who he is, why he's here, what he's to do. To proclaim good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Did Jesus have any question about who he was? Have any question about what he was there to do? Not at all. He wants you to know your identity as well. We go to Matthew. It starts in a very familiar way. Genealogy. The account of Jesus' birth. We have to figure out where he's from. Here's his line. Now he's born. In Matthew 4, we get the account of Jesus being tested by the devil and then being baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist is taken by Herod, put in prison. Jesus steps up to preach in his place. That's an interesting thing. I don't know if you ever saw that or noticed it before. When John the Baptist is taken to prison, they don't know that he's going to be killed, but he's been taken to prison by Herod, and that's, that's usually the way that turns out. And so the people did not scatter. The people did not say, where is God? We stop. If he's not going to back us up, we're out of here. No. Jesus just stepped up, standing, stood in the gap, and took his place in the line. Because that's his identity. In chapter 4, he calls his first disciples, does his first miracles. This is in Matthew now. Then after gathering large crowds who want to know what this new messenger from God has to say, he takes them to a mountainside where they can see him better, hear him better. And then he sits down. Sitting down among the Jews at that time was a sign that you were the teacher. The teacher spoke sitting down. Everybody gathers, they listen, and there Jesus gives them the longest sermon we have recorded in Scripture. It was not his longest sermon, but it's the longest one we've got. We know there were longer ones that people were getting hungry and fainting because he didn't stop. You remember those, the feeding of the 5,000. But those weren't recorded. This one was. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And he starts by saying, you've heard it said. But I say, you've heard it said, but I say, I would submit to you, we can tell by watching your life, and you can tell by watching mine, who you're listening to. The world says, God says, who are you listening to? Which way are you leaning? In Acts chapter 17, the scripture says this, they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other, city, uh, some, some other believers sorry, before the city officials shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason welcomed them into his house. They were all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. There's a line there that most versions say not caused a lot of trouble. It says they have turned the city or the world upside down. Literally, that's what the, the phrasing and the language there means. Took everything and stood it on its head. 
That's exactly what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. All these disciples were doing was maintaining the family tradition of Jesus Christ. We're going to stand this on its head. We're going to, you know, the world likes to drive by those that are hungry. The world likes to act like you don't see them on the street. We're going to open up our building. We're going to let them come in, use the restrooms, be in air conditioning, and then we're going to fill their shopping carts. And it's not going to be, what, what's hominy? Uh, I, every, every church I've gone to, you walk into the church pantry for the poor, and there are cans of hominy. You never see billboards. This restaurant has hominy. I, I know it's a, it's a, it's a, it, a corn-based product, but it looks to me like ex-corn, that it used to be food. But we're, when we got done with it, it's kind of like grits. And I know you like grits, and I'm stepping on... But people, people. <clears throat> if you put cheese on grits, they taste like cheese. If you put honey on grits, they taste like honey. If you don't put anything on it, it tastes like a fork. We don't do that. We, we gave them fresh food, fresh produce, fresh baked goods. We lined it up to where they would eat as well as we can eat. We stood the world upside down. That's what we do. We come into a world, we're told that our church can't like other churches. What do we do? Well, we went further. We loved them. We're, we're, we're supposed to, to have an identity that changes the world and turns it upside down, not to mess things up, but to bring love into the equation. A few weeks ago, I went to the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia. Spoiler alert, you won. Um, I, I tried not to speak very much during the tour. You know, I, they're talking about, oh, those awful British, they did this, that, and the other. I'm going, oh, uh, you know, howdy, you know, um, yep, you know, things, you know. I was trying to pass, you know, I was doing my best. I walked down by Independence Hall where the Declaration of Independence was signed. Didn't go in because it cost money, and I'm still Scottish, people, you know. <laughs> people said, don't you want to see the Liberty Bell? And I said, show me one that didn't crack, because, you know, I, why don't I have to be that much for, anyway, a uh, broken one. It's hard to realize how revolutionary the ideas in that Declaration of Independence were. Because it was saying, we're not based on class. We're, we're not based on nationality. We're based on, we have come together as a voluntary community and all have rights. Was it perfect? Of course it wasn't. We all know that. But everybody has to make a journey to get where we're supposed to be. We're not perfect, but we're on a journey. And they took, you know, the Articles of Confederation and the like, they took a lot of this from the Magna Carta in England, or the Scottish Declaration of Arbroath, they took ideas from there to say, we're people, and people have rights, and that was a shocker. Well, the Sermon on the Mount should best be seen in that light, not as a political statement, but as a statement saying, we are a new nation, a new people, declaring our allegiance to God and to each other, bound together by love, and this is what love looks like. Look at the opening lines, known to us as the Beatitudes, but not called that in Scripture. They're the sticks of dynamite thrown into the, the works, standing the world upside down. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
The poor in spirit will be given the kingdom of heaven, not the proud, the rich, the haughty, the strutting, those covered with bling and adoration. No, we're going to turn that upside down. The humble, the kind are part of this kingdom. How about verse 4? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The mourn will not, those who mourn will not be shoved to the side. We're going to gather around them. We're going to embrace them. We're going to love them. And because we now know them, we can help lift them up out of their pain, out of their despair and their loneliness. Because we didn't walk by and we didn't just drop a couple of dollars in. I'm not knocking that, by the way. That's a good thing. Keep giving. But we're learning their names. We're forming community. Blessed are those who mourn because this kingdom is coming and it will lift them up. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. Now we don't really aim for meekness, but we ought to. Meek doesn't mean timid, nervous, shy, cowardly. No, meek actually, and especially in the Hebrew language, means somebody who, understand who, who understands who's in charge. Therefore, they act appropriately toward authority. We believe God is in charge of heavens and earth. We know who we are, why we are, who is in charge, and who will succeed, and we choose to walk in that community. In that nation, and in the world to come, we follow Jesus. Verse 6 Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's shocking how few adults will ever read a book. I've seen several figures on it, and I don't feel comfortable choosing one. Let's just say that every figure I've seen shows that the majority of adults will never read a complete book after getting out of high school or university. That is insane. We need to be hungry for righteousness, hungry for truth, hunger for this. So we study it. We get together. We know we, we can't do it on our own. We need to feed from each other. We're not content with what we've received. We want to search. We want to pray. We want to think and aim our lives toward righteousness. Next, blessed are the merciful, for they show receive mercy. I, I love that one. I really do. Have you ever noticed that in all the list of Christian gifts, First Chronicle, uh, I'm sorry, First Corinthians 12, Romans 12, we could go on. All of those different lists, never does God bring up criticism or judgment or complaining. Then, once you realize that, go to the Old Testament, watch that 40 years in the wilderness in particular, but the whole, the whole arc of judges, prophets, and kings when did God lose his temper? When they started whining and complaining. When they complained, that's when God had had enough. He is looking for the merciful, not the judgmental, the picky, the complaining, the whining, the demanding, but the merciful. Now, how does that look? Well, we can think of obvious things. People hurt us, we forgive them. That's a biggie. That's certainly involved... But there are other things as well. What if the worship isn't entirely to your liking? Can you be merciful? What if the shepherds make a decision you wouldn't have made? Can you be merciful to them? 
What if your wife or your husband decides they, they, they have a new hobby? And it wasn't one they had before, and you're not really happy with it. It's not a sinful hobby. You know, not like selling drugs on the corner. We're talking you know, beekeeping or, you know, um, parachuting, you know, something like this. And you're thinking, um, oh, I don't, be merciful. John Eldridge has written quite a bit in his book, for example, Wild at Heart, that you need, you need to be merciful toward those wild creatures called men. Let them be men, as long as they're Christian men. Are you merciful? And we ought to be merciful to our wives. In the book of Song of Solomon, one of the reasons a woman kept praising the guy was because he would buy her expensive ointments and, and, and dresses and jewelry. I don't understand the need for any of this. When I was a, when I was a bachelor, my counter was a very simple place. Soap, a razor, kind of it. Now there's a city. And, and I'm a scientist, and every so often I'll, just, I'll say, all right, I'm, I'm going in. I'll pick up a jar, look at the back of it, going, that, 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 that. I don't know what one of those is. I must get this from extinct yaks uh, that found, found encased hole in ice caves. And, but anyway, uh, hey, we're merciful. We don't walk around, I don't say, we don't act like that. We're merciful people. That's really important. Let's go to the next one. We're going to come back to these in detail later as we go through here. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think that one's a struggle for me. How about you? Trying to keep my heart pure, not just from thoughts about the world, but pure as in purely focused on God and not being distracted. We need the community to help us do that. That's another reason we have to be in community. The next one. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, I want you to look at that word. It doesn't say blessed are the peaceful. Blessed are the peacemakers. There's a variety of ways we can make peace. But God wants us to be actively involved in making peace. And those who are are truly citizens in good standing in this new kingdom. And then, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I gotta tell you, I don't like that one much. I'd much rather it said, if you pray this special prayer, everything you want will be yours. But he said, no. So if you identify as a member of Christ's kingdom and you walk in that way, you will be an irritant in some places. You will be sandpaper to some people. You will cause some to persecute you. In Revelation 10, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation 12, verse 10, Satan is described as the accuser of our brothers and sisters. Would you please look at that and absorb this? Revelation 12, 10. Satan is cast out of heaven. There's a war there because he tried to kill Jesus. He's thrown to earth, and the, and the angels sing a warning to us, saying, Woe to you, the inhabitants of the earth, because the devil's come down with his angels, and he's coming after you. And one of the first ways he works, they mention... He accuses the brothers and the sisters. I was off playing golf several years ago with some people, and they just signed me to this, this foursome. Uh, I do that a lot. I call it golf evangelism. I'm hoping one day to have the, see, here's a water hazard. What doth hinder you? But that hasn't come. I live in hope. I live in hope. Um, but as we were playing, the guy goes, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a minister. And I said, yes. He goes, where? And I told him, he goes, is so-and-so a member there? And I said, yes. 
And he said, well, you ought to see him when you're not around. And he started to try to tell me things bad about the member. And I just put my hand up near his face. And that, Americans don't do that. So it kind of shocked him a bit. Uh, he backed up. He had a club. I had a club. This could have gone sideways. But <laughs> I said, there's a big difference between him and you. He comes to my community, and he's trying, and I don't know you. And I have three rules, very solid rules about these things. When someone comes to me from outside my community to tell me bad about somebody inside my community, my rules, is, my rules are don't listen, don't listen, and don't listen. Why? Because I'd rather be ignorant of evil things? Yeah, very, actually, yes. But there's another reason. We, we have to stay together. And if I join in the accusing of my brothers and sisters, whose team am I on? If I go on the internet to read stories about that church doing this, that church is doing that, or preach against that church or that church, whose side am I on? I've just gone to Team Satan. And I have no interest in being on Team Satan. Therefore, I will not speak against my brothers or sisters, even if they speak against me. No, I have a team. Our team does this. We're marked by love. We, um, we showed a film last week about DNA, and, I, and several of you wrote in how powerful that was to you. But science has been learning us to understand what God's been trying to tell us for millennia. We're one people. We can claim that we're this, that, or the other, but we're one people. Because of that, we esteem our brothers and sisters, and that includes those outside our community. We just don't receive accusations. We show love. We don't attack, attack. There used to be a time, I'm told, I'm told, I'm, 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 by the way, I'm not thoroughly convinced, that there used to be a time in America where Democrats and Republicans disagreed about policy, but they treated each other nicely and they worked together. Let's assume, let's just play it does. But now, in our society, if you don't agree with my politics, it's not that I disagree with your politics, it's that you're a bad person, and you don't deserve to speak or live. There's a problem with that. We don't join those teams. We show dignity and love to all people. And Jesus goes from there to upend our way of looking at laws. You've heard it said, but I say. It is no longer an external obedience to a written law but an internal obedience to our new identity in Christ. Internal. Laws were not written to rob us of our joy. They were written to ensure our joy. But whenever all we did was do the external, that didn't do it. So now it's moved inside. And he writes in here that this nation will have enemies. We don't have enemies, but some people consider us their enemies. So what do we do? We love those who call us their enemy. And if they're hungry, we feed them. And if they're thirsty, we give them something to drink. We refuse to answer evil with evil, as again Paul would later say. This nation does not hoard its goods. This nation shares them freely. Trusting God will provide what we need when we need it. Embrace yourself. In this new nation... God has a lot to say about our stuff and our money. In fact, the mo we, we've brought this up before. 
The most often given command of Jesus while he was on earth was fear not. But the subject he talked about more than any other was money. Because money is power. Money is a symbol of work. Money is also a symbol of who do you trust. Where do you put it? What do you do with it? Why do you earn it? This community has different rules about that. We're a sharing, giving, caring community. We'll talk more about that as we go through looking at the Sermon on the Mount. But to wrap this up this morning, we're also given warnings about how this could all go sideways in Scripture. I don't think it's apocryphal. I think it's supposed to actually be history, but somebody can correct me on this later. That when the delegates to write the Constitution or the Articles of Confederation, I'm not really sure which one it was, were meeting in Philadelphia to establish the rules for this new nation, people gathered outside wondering what was going to happen. Are we going to have a monarchy? Are we going to have a prime minister model? What, what are we going to have? A democracy. Will we have a democracy? Which, by the way, you don't have and you ought to be happy about. Democracy is just mob rule. It's a majority rule. It's not always a good thing. Whenever Benjamin Franklin came out, I'm told, again, that this is history, a woman ran up to him and says, Mr. Franklin, what have you given us? And his response was, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Republic is based upon the concept of everyone has rights, even those with whom we disagree. Everyone has standing, even those with whom we disagree. Sometimes I wonder if Jesus shouldn't have walked off the, the mountain at the end and said, I've given you meaning, an identity, a community, and a king. Make sure you keep it. Make sure you hold on to it. I believe every generation must once again stop, read, think, pray, and pledge allegiance to our true king, our true constitution, our way of life. And if you want that summed up for you, read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, where we're going to live for the next wee while. Because that is the identifying markers of who is in this kingdom. Bring your team up, if you would, Keith. As you do, let's all stand. We're not going to sing this. We're also not going to do the motions unless you just feel led to. <laughs> I, I don't. Uh, but you know this. Every, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, this is at the end of that sermon where we get our identity, and puts them into practice. You have a republic if you can keep it. You have a nation if you can keep it. Put it into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain came down, the, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus has come to lay it down. This is who we are. This is our identity marker. This is our constitution. This is our rule of faith. We intend to listen. We intend to keep it. Amen, church?